Well, I've always enjoyed family history and genealogy. I can remember as a kid, maybe I was 10, 11 years old, perhaps, sometimes my family would go for car rides on, sat- on Sunday afternoons. So I'd be wedged in the, the front middle seat wearing just a, just a buckle, uh, just a seat buckle, uh, between my grandparents, with my mom, maybe an aunt in the background, in the back seat, and we'd be driving around the back roads of Logan County, Ohio, just all cramped up in my grandfather's sedan, and we'd pass a farm. We were a farming family, historically. We'd pass a farm. One of the adults would ask, okay, now who used to live there? Oh, that was Vernon Yoder's place. That was before he sold it to Dale Kaufman. Oh, right. Wasn't your daughter, wasn't his daughter Julie in your class? No, I think she was in the class ahead of me. I liked listening to these discussions. I knew a few of the people that we were talking about, and most of the others, I didn't have a clue. But it was really interesting to me and a little amusing to hear about the people in our little community and how we were all connected. And then frequently, the question would come, so how are we related to them? Well, let me see. And then we'd work it out. It seemed like we were related to everybody. We lived in a pretty small community, tight-knit, about a thousand people, mostly of Mennonite background, as we ourselves had been a couple of generations back. So the phone book had page after page after page of Kings and Kaufmans and Yoders, and we were related to them all. Two branches of the Yoders, in fact. And so one night, lying in bed, I even worked out how I was related to myself. (laughs) Thankfully, it takes about 24 steps and multiple intermarriages. So, it's not that bad. (laughs) Now, other than establishing that I was rather a weird child, (laughs) what am I driving at? Well, family history is actually important. It's a good thing to know who your people are. And it's a good thing to know where you've come from. Because knowing family history places you in a larger narrative. It locates you within a set of stories and connects you to a wider community. And when you know and you remember that legacy, it can help you better understand who you are and what are the influences that have helped shape you. Now, as Christians, you and I are each members of of different earthly families, of course. But we're also members of one family, God's family. And that means we need to know our spiritual family history. We need to study the stories of our spiritual ancestors, our foremothers and our forefathers of the faith. And it's in the scriptures that we have recorded for us that history, our history. I wonder if you tend to read the Bible that way, especially perhaps in the Old Testament. Or do you read the narratives of the nation of Israel and you think, boy, why on earth is this relevant? Well, there may be any number of reasons why it's relevant to you, but one of them is, these are our people. This is our history. And studying this history helps us better understand who we are. And if we can learn the lessons from history that God has laid out for us, it will help us to, to follow Jesus more faithfully. 
Now, of course, sometimes family history is happy and it's comfortable and you love telling those stories. Maybe it's even heroic. And other times it's sad and it's painful. Today we're going to consider one of the sad and painful bits. But it's going to point us to something very glorious. So would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm 80. Psalm 80, which is on page 491 of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. Now, as you're turning, as BJ mentioned, Psalm 79, which Keith read, and Psalm 80, which I'm going to preach, they are songs of captivity and exile. Next week, BJ is going to be launching a sermon series in Ezra and Nehemiah. And those books give some of the history of the nation of Israel after they return from the exile and after the years of captivity in Babylon. But today, we're taking a step back, back to the time when the nation was in exile itself. And Psalm 80, therefore, is a lament because God has allowed the nation to be ravaged. Well, when was it written? I don't think we can know totally for sure, but here's my guess. You might remember that in the days of King David's grandson, Rehoboam, ten of the tribes that lived in the north of Israel broke away and they formed their own kingdom. That northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom that was still under the rule of David's family was called Judah. And over the next couple hundred years, Both kingdoms, both the north and the south, staggered and lurched their way toward destruction because they did evil in the the sight of the Lord. But there was a difference. The, The northern tribes, their descent into wickedness was quicker and more devastating. Because right from the get-go, their kings led them into idolatry. And in fact, they never had a single ruler during their whole time that they existed that turned back to the right worship of God. Whereas the south, Judah at least had some periods of revival and some righteous kings, but the north didn't have either righteous kings or any revivals. So the Lord sent prophets to warn them. That didn't work. They refused to listen to the prophets. And he was patient with them, and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, but they stubbornly continued to rebel And so the Lord stirred up the great Assyrian Empire, which was the greatest power of the age at that time. And the Assyrians first started bullying and dominating Israel until finally they came and just captured the capital city in 722 B.C. 722 is the year that Assyria carried Israel away into exile far away to the east. And that was the end of the northern kingdom. They were exiled away from the promised land because of their stubborn disobedience to the Lord. And many scholars think this psalm, Psalm 80, was written right around that time. And it's lamenting this terrible disaster that God has has wiped them out of the land. So let's read it together, please. We'll read it all the way through to start. Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to lilies, that might be the tune, a testimony. Of Asaph, a psalm. So you see it's written by one of the descendants of Asaph, and they were the temple singers. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a a flock. 
you who are enthroned upon, upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forage ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. While the structure of this psalm is fairly easy to see, I've laid it out in your bulletin insert if you'd like to see it. It's the gray paper in the middle of your bulletins. You might say this is a song with three verses and a chorus. And each of the verses makes an appeal to the Lord to act on Israel's behalf. And then at the end of every one of the stanzas comes the refrain, Restore us and let your face shine so that we may be saved. Let's consider the first appeal in verses 1 to 3. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Now there's so much packed into these these first couple lines, so much imagery, which actually means there's a lot to unpack because we're not used to this kind of language. But let's start with the basics. The psalmist is doing what? He's begging for God to hear and to act. And why... Should the Lord act? Well, because of who he is and who he's committed himself to be. He is Israel's shepherd and he is Israel's king. The shepherd and the king have a responsibility to the sheep and the people, don't they? So Joseph, and that's a poetic way to refer to the northern tribes, Joseph is his flock. Israel is his chosen people. And at the end of verse 1, you see the king is upon his throne. He's enthroned. Where is he enthroned? Well, his earthly throne is the Ark of the Covenant. And remember, in the Holy of Holies, there 
was the mercy seat covering the Ark of the Covenant. And between the, the wings of the great golden cherubim, upon the mercy seat, that was where the glory of God dwelt. Now, do you know, you probably don't remember this, do you know what Moses used to say when the Ark would set up, set out on its next stage of its journey? So the Ark was going to move, and Israel was going to move with it. Moses would always say this. He would say, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And then the ark would set out. And do you know who would follow behind the ark? The tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, the tribes that are in verse verse 2. So there's this, what's this image that we're getting? It's God himself who is the great king who's enthroned over the ark and he's leading his people out and he's going up before his people to act on their behalf. And so here in the first stanza, the psalmist is saying, Lord, that's what you used to do. That's what you did do in the past. Oh God, oh God, do that again. And hear us and stir up your might and and rouse yourself on our behalf. Let your glory, your royal glory, shine forth again before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh so that your people can be saved. And all your enemies can be put to flight. So come now to the rescue of your people. Then in verse 3, we hear the refrain for the first time. Restore us, or, or turn us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine so that we might be saved. Turn us back to you. And turn your face toward us again in blessing. That's the face of God. That's always where we, where we hunger for our blessing to come from. May his face be turned toward us in favor. Turn your face toward us in blessing that we may know the light of your favor. Well, that's the first appeal. What's the second? The second is for the Lord to remove his anger from his people. So verse 4. O Lord God of hosts, How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You've given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. So the psalmist acknowledges that at this present moment, the Lord's anger is upon Israel. Not his favor, his anger. And their wickedness has created such a great rift between them and God, that he will not even hear them when they pray. Because their prayers are prayers of hypocrisy. In Isaiah chapter 1, which was written under pretty similar circumstances, the Lord vows that he will not accept the religious duties performed by wicked people. Just think about that for a minute. So we think about all that goes on in this world. All that goes on in this world. In other religions and even within Christianity the Lord will not accept the religious duties that are performed by wicked people. He says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are covered with blood. Now that's what's going on in Psalm 80. Israel... God's people has turned away from him to do evil to such a great degree 
And he's had to bring calamity upon them. And so much sorrow that tears are like their food and their drink. And all the surrounding nations are laughing at them, laughing at their desolation, ready to pounce and devour the spoil. And the psalmist asks, Lord, how long is it going to be this way? When are you going to turn from your burning anger against us? Will you not make it soon? And then without waiting for an answer, he again cries out, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. There's that refrain again. Turn us back to you. He's calling for the Lord to bring them to repentance. Because if only God will be gracious and work in their hearts, their hearts which are the problem, and if he will deal definitively with their sin problem, then they could once again know his favor instead of his wrath. But until God turns them, their hearts will remain far from him. That brings us to the third and the final appeal, which starts in verse 8. It takes up a much larger chunk. And here the psalmist is going to get really bold. He calls on the Lord to resolve what he thinks is a pretty major tension. And here's the tension. God has forsaken the vine that he himself planted. God planted this this wonderful vine, and now he has forsaken the vine that he planted. Read again at verse 8. You brought out a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root. It filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. And it sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its wall? so that all who pass by, pass along the way, pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. The vine, of, of course, is Israel. It's one of the prophet's favorite metaphors to picture the nation as God's vine, the vine he planted. And the psalmist here points out how much tender care God once had for this vine. It was he that brought the vine out of Egypt, That was his idea. Because the ground needed to be prepped before he could transplant that, I had to do that with my raspberries this year, get out all the weeds, get out all the crabgrass. He uprooted all the weeds, all the briars and the crabgrass from the land. Those are are the wild and the unfruitful nations that had been in Canaan before them. He, He drove them all out and then planted Israel, the vine of his choosing, in the promised land. And it flourished. It flourished, especially under the reigns of David and Solomon. Israel expanded its territory, expanded its influence until it did control, in fact, the land all the way from the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to the Euphrates River. So Israel was glorious, it was thriving, it was fruitful, but that was all, that was yesterday. Look at God's vine now. Savage beasts have overrun the vineyard and strong nations have gone through and ravaged it. They've trampled the vine. They've devoured the fruit. Just imagine the the devastation that, that could be caused if you let just one hungry pig loose in a vineyard. Right? That, you know, vineyard owner's not going to be very happy with you. 
This is an apt picture of the Assyrians who have swept through the land of Israel and the vine is uprooted and its grapes have been crushed and now all the rest of the wild beasts, they want, they want some of the pickings, the smaller neighboring nations. They come along, they pick through the ruins, they, they, they want a little bit of what's left. And the, the vine is, you know, just a dead husk. What has allowed the vine to be ravaged in this way? It's because... Verse 12, the Lord broke down the walls. The Lord removed the protections from around his vine and left it exposed. He is the one that led in the wild animals himself. And the psalmist moans, God, why would you do this to your own vine? And of course, he knows why. He's not really confused. He understands that the nation deserves this punishment. But nonetheless, he's reminding the Lord, you have a vested interest in Israel, God. This was your idea, this vineyard. It's as if he's trying to to convince and persuade the Lord to rescue his investment. He's got a few ideas about how the Lord can do it and resolve the situation. Look again at verse 14. Turn again, O Lord of hosts. First he's he's been saying, turn us, and now he's saying, you turn toward us as well. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. There's his face turned toward the enemies in wrath. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Lord, give us life and we will call upon your name. So as it turns out, the psalmist's proposed solution to the problem is resurrection. He wants God to look down from his holy heavenly throne, look down upon this devastated vine and have regard for it, or, or visit it. It's kind of like back uh, in Genesis when, and God remembered Noah. Well, had he forgotten about Noah? Was Bobby in there on the ark? No, but now he remembered Noah and began to act in rescue and saving. In, a, in the same way, God should look down from heaven and have regard and visit this vine. There's a a really beautiful pun in 15. We, of course, don't have it in the English. It says, Have regard for the stock that your right hand planted and for the the bane. And that word can either mean branch or it can mean son. So, you know, it's this vine metaphor, right? So, So have a care, have regard for this branch son who you have made strong for yourself. So now he's expanding the imagery. Remember, O God, how precious this vine is to you. It's not just a piece of property. This is your son, your own son, who's been cut down by these animals. So come and avenge yourself on those who have hurt your boy. Stretch out your powerful hand. Place it on your son and give us life. Give us life. Revive us again and we won't turn back from you. So ultimately, you see that the, resu- the, the resolution that's needed is nothing short of the resurrection of God's Son. 
Well, that should ring some bells, shouldn't it? Guys, I have to confess, I have really struggled to work on how to explain this text. This is incredibly rich, dense, beautiful poetry, but it's from such a faraway time and such a faraway place that we kind of have to break it apart and analyze all the individual pieces if we're going to understand it. And, and that can feel somewhat wooden and mechanical, when really it's just, this is just a glorious, deep, meaningful lament. But we had to break the pieces down if we're going to understand it. So let's just zoom out again. Here's the big picture of Psalm 80. Israel, God's son, the vine of his planting, is ravaged and desolate because of his rebellion. And the psalmist is appealing to God to take action to restore the vine and resurrect his son. Now, if you're wondering at this point what on earth this ancient poem has to do with you, remember, if you're a believer, what is this? This is family history. This is the story of your people. When this was written, your people were in deep distress and anguish as they were sent off into captivity because of their sin. And that has implications for you. You need, you need this story to turn out a certain way. It's kind of like that movie, Back to the Future. <laughs> Marty, it's, it's serious, but it, it, it's, it's kind of like that. Marty McFly goes back in time to a time when his parents are teenagers, and, and he's got a problem. He really, really, really needs to make sure that his parents have their first kiss. Because otherwise, in the future, he's not going to get born. Well, well, back when this psalm was written, you and I have a problem. Because if God, at this moment doesn't answer this prayer, if he forsakes the vine completely and casts Israel off, you don't get saved. And I don't get saved. We really need this to come out a certain way. We really need God to answer this prayer with a yes. So let's look and see what actually happened and how the Lord responded to the psalmist's prayer. Well, Israel both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, did go into exile, the north to Assyria, the south to Babylon. Because the Lord couldn't bear with their disobedience forever. It was, too, it was too severe, it was too flagrant. And so for 70 years, God's people languished in captivity. A few of the poorest of the poorest of the poor, they left behind to tend the land, tend the ruined vineyard. And then as we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah, in the series we're about to start, the Lord gave a partial answer. He had preserved his people in exile, and at the end of 70 years, he had regard for his vine. He did. He had regard for his vine, and many of the Jews returned to the land of promise. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls. And their leaders tried to turn them back to the Lord. And it was good. It was good. It was a cause for rejoicing. But it still wasn't like it used to be. It wasn't what it needed to be. It wasn't a full restoration. They were still waiting for more. What was God going to do? Was God going to do more for his vine than this, you know, kind of good result? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. He was going to act in fullness give a full answer, because in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus came into the world. 
So God didn't just look down from heaven, did he? He sent his son down from heaven and and into the world. And the Son of God came as the Son of Man in order that he might bring restoration to Israel. But in order to do that, he he actually had to become Israel. He had to do what Israel ought to have done and be what Israel ought to have been. This is, this is called, in, in biblical studies, this is called recapitulation. Here's, here's Israel's story. Jesus has to, has to follow that story. Right? That's why he gets baptized, and he goes up and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. Why does he have to do that? Well, because Israel, faithless Israel, was baptized into the Red Sea and immediately went out into the desert to be tempted by the Lord for 40 years. Did Israel pass or fail that test? They failed. What did Jesus do? Jesus has to do it right. He goes into the wilderness and he passes. And he rejects the, the lies of the devil. And he, and he triumphs. See, Jesus has to do it all. But he has to do it all right. And that's exactly what he did. He has to stand, stand where Israel had fa- failed. Which is what he did. He was the true vine. He grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground, Isaiah says. The Lord nourished him and caused him to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And and he flourished because he was careful to obey all that the Lord had commanded. He did not turn aside from the Lord to the right or to the left. He didn't do what faithless Israel did. Walk, Walk away from from the Lord. He was the son of God's right hand, and so God made him strong for himself. God made him strong for himself, for his own purposes. But if if Jesus was going to restore Israel, if he was going to bring about this restoration, he had to do something else. See, it wasn't enough for him to live for Israel. He had to die for Israel. He had to take their place and suffer the consequences of their disobedience. So even though he had, been, he had kept himself from all sin, now, at the end of his life, Jesus took Israel's sin upon himself. And now the faithful vine was standing in place of the unfaithful vine. And because he, because he did that, because he placed himself in the position of the unfaithful vine, the Lord broke down all his walls the Lord broke down his walls. And his anger burned against the true vine. And God gave him up and left him to the ravages of the wild and unclean beasts. And anyone, any passerby who wanted could come along and savage him. And as Jesus hung there and he was crucified and exposed, every vicious neighbor, every bitter enemy mocked. Let God deliver him if he delights in him. He trusted in God. So they took God's precious vine and they cut it down and they burned it with fire. And the Lord permitted all of it. The Lord permitted all that. Not only that, he ordained it. He himself, for that space of time, removed the light of his face away from the son that he loved. And he exiled Jesus away out of his presence and sent him into the darkness because of our sin. And so we find that all the devastation 
that is described in Psalm 80 was visited upon Jesus, the faithful and true vine. And the vineyard lay desolate and ruined. But only for three days, right? Only for three days. And then the Lord arose and stirred up his might and had regard for his vine once again. And he placed his hand upon the Son of Man, the Son of his right hand, and he gave him life again. And in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, God gives the full answer to the anguished prayers of Psalm 80. Because Jesus, who is the true vine, has been restored. But it's even better than that, because every person who joins themselves by faith to Jesus is grafted into this vine as a branch. And so they get to share in the vine's restoration. Jesus is restored, so are all those who have joined themselves to him. Let's explore how this works as we look at how God has answered. So, I'm kind of just going to go through it again really quickly. The Lord heard and acted on behalf of his vine. He raised Jesus from the dead and gave him a new and incorruptible life. But, but what does John 6 say? It's also the Father's will that everyone who looks to Jesus and believes in him will have eternal life. And Jesus himself will raise him up on the last day. So God heard and acted to raise Jesus from the dead. He's doing that with us as well. We see that the Lord has removed his anger from the vine. Jesus bore the full measure of the just wrath of God against his people's sin. So, so how, what does that mean for Jesus? Never again, not even for a moment, will he have to endure his Father's displeasure. Never again. That's done. And it's the same for us who are joined to Jesus, isn't it? No wrath remains for us to face. We're sheltered by His saving grace and sprinkled with His blood. God is not angry with you anymore if you're in Christ. His anger has been turned aside because we're part of the vine. And then also the Lord has shown His face upon His vine. Jesus has the Father's eternal favor. He is the beloved Son And the Father is working out all things so that Jesus might get the glory. But then for those of us who are in Jesus, the same thing is true of us. We know the light of the Father's face as well. 2 Corinthians 4 says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? Where is the glory of God to be found? Where is His face shining? In the face of Jesus Christ. Have you seen the face of Jesus Christ? You know God's favor. You know God's favor. So do you see how all this history of God's dealings with an ancient people complete with exiles and enemies and faithful cries during times of unfaithfulness and returns from exile that kind of work but don't really work, partial returns, all this. See how you fit into this family history? This is your story. You need God to answer these prayers and accomplish this restoration. And he has. 
the story turns out well. God has restored Jesus, who is the true Israel, and all the promises are yes and amen in Him. Because He is the true vine. He is the Son of Man. He is the shining face of God. And so the promises are for you. The promises are for you, if you will believe in Him. You can be saved. You can be restored. You can be resurrected and forgiven. You can participate in the rich life of the vine as a fruitful branch. This is how Jesus describes it in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or he cleans that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, you're pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. This is serious stuff. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So, beloved, join yourself to this vine. There's no life apart from partaking in the rich and fruitful life of Jesus. Apart from him, you are a withered branch, dry, cracking, ready to go on the fire. If you have not yet been grafted into the vine by faith, because what happens? He when we put our trust in Him, He grafts us in and suddenly all that deadness begins to be replaced by life as the, the rich life of the Lord Jesus begins to circulate in our bodies and in our souls. God will give you this Jesus life which will begin to change you so you start bearing fruit in you his glory. Now, if you are already in the vine, let's obey him. Abide in him, as he said. Remain in him. Be nourished by him so that you may bear more fruit. Take more of him into yourself. Take more of his life into you and let it flow through you. Because God is exalting this vine. And he's making it great and glorious. And its branches are spreading out and sending out shoots to the very ends of the earth. 
It will grow. It will flourish. It will flourish to the very ends of the earth. What are the two fastest growing churches in the last little while? Iran and Afghanistan. The Lord is building His church. He is causing His vine to flourish. It will grow and flourish until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. You want in on this, friends. You want in. You want in on this restoration of God's vine. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not leave your vine to be trampled forever. You have exalted the man of your right hand. You have resurrected your son. And you call us to join him, join ourselves to him by repentance and faith that we might share in his life, his eternal life. Lord, many of us here have already experienced that transformation. We've already grafted, been grafted into the vine. Lord, there are many more here today that still have not done this. And I pray for them, Lord, that they would see that there is no life apart from being attached to the vine and that they would seek Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who know you, Lord, may we be branches that bear much fruit. May RGC be, a, be full of grape leaves and tendrils and everything that there is and because, we're, because we're there, we're connected to him and we're bearing fruit. Lord, would we be such a community of grace. So Father, work in us individually and as a church to understand and to participate in your restoration of all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.